Thank you very much. I'm not used to such a large audience. I do appreciate you all coming out today in the nice cold weather. I think you're going to enjoy this show. In fact, I know you are. Uh, we have some fantastic storytellers. And I'm just going to tell you a little bit about how we got started in this, this whole thing. Um, my name is John Lovering, and I am the engineer and the producer of this program. Uh, I don't do too many stories once in a while. I tell my wife some, but, uh, you know, <laughs> she believes them, and well, that's good. Um, anyway, what I would like to say is uh, how we got started. Back in, uh, in October of 2013, I was listening to The Moth, NPR's radio show on, on storytelling, and I started to read some articles in some trade magazines, radio magazines, that uh, storytelling was having a resurgence in this country, and I thought, that's great, because it's, it's an art that's been lost, and, and we're bringing it back. I had been at the radio station since 2004, actually the year before we went on the air, when we were writing the mission statement. And one of the lines in the mission statement is to bring people in the community into the station and participate in cultural arts and educational activities. And I thought, wow, storytelling, cultural arts, bringing the community in. What a great fit. If we put a program on the air that features storytelling, it, there's two things we're going to happen. One, we're going to get people from the community coming in to tell stories and probably people that had never heard of the station before didn't even know we were there. We're only 100 watts, like one of these light bulbs. Some of these are more powerful. <laughs> so uh, we don't get out too far. Some people had never heard of us. So I thought that would be great. But the second part is the audiences will do it live in front of an in-studio audience. And uh, we would have more people brought into the station. So I thought that that would be a great mix. And I went to the board. And I have done audio theater uh, since 2004 from 6 to 8 on Tuesday nights. And I spoke to the uh, Board of Trustees, and I said, how about this idea? And I said, what I'll do is the last Tuesday of the month, I'll give the show up for True Tales Radio. I'll produce that, and we'll get that started. And I explained my uh, theory behind it and how I thought it would be helpful. They jumped right on it. It was a unanimous vote. So in January of 2014, we began True Tales Radio. And I'm going to uh, introduce, first of all, Amy Antonucci. We'll take it from there. Around the time that John was thinking all those thoughts he told you about, I came into the station one Tuesday and was talking to him. And he said, listen, I have this idea. What do you think about it? And I think I said something like, yes! Or something very, very enthusiastic that made him think, I should probably tap into that. So he sent me an email and said, listen, I'm going to go forward with this, and can I run some ideas by you? Would you like to be part of it? And I, as a person who has always loved stories and loved The Moth and StoryCorps and all those programs, I just thought it was wonderful to bring something like this to our community. And I absolutely said yes to him and helped bring forward the first and then the next and the next show. But that very first show, one of our storytellers was Pat Spaulding, and I will pass it on to her to tell you how she got involved. Thanks. Yeah, so I'm a storyteller before True Tales Radio, and I've actually performed on this stage, but I was looking for a change in 2014, and for some reason, um, I'm on the list of WSCA, and they have a tidings newsletter that comes in every month, which I usually never read because I'm on too many lists to read anything, but this caught my eye because it was changing over to New Year. Something new should happen. I looked that they were calling for volunteer storytellers January 2014. It's like, okay, I can do that. So I 
called up, I got in touch, I told a story, but more important, I listened to the stories of others. I got very excited about being a listener rather than a teller. And so I asked, hey, can I have a piece of this action? Once a month, I can handle that much commitment, not much more. But um, <laughs> John said, yeah, sure, maybe uh, you want to be an MC? Yes. <laughs> so that was my role, and I have uh, very happily been MC for True Tales Radio for the last two years, and I hope to continue doing it. What do we do next? Okay. John with some technical stuff. Ah, yes. Yeah. I was supposed to introduce John with the technical etiquette. We're going to do this just like we do the show. So some of the things I'm going to say here won't make any sense to you in this building, but, but I'm doing exactly what we do. Imagine you're in the radio studio. Uh, we usually have anywhere from oh, five to 35 people there. It depends. Uh, it depends on the weather. It depends on the stories, how many people we've got up there and so forth. But this is basically what we do. I greet everyone. I introduce uh, Amy Antonucci and Pat Spaulding. As Pat Spaulding is our MC and Amy is our announcer. I also introduce Gene Gagne and Steve Cowell, who, who are not here today, but they do. They're our photographers. We take pictures of all the storytellers so that we could put up archives and uh, postings on the website and so forth. And so we get all the introductions out of the way. We assemble at 6 p.m. The show, the storytelling, doesn't begin until 6:30, 6:30 or 6:35. Well, what are we doing with that first half hour? Well, the listener's at home. This is my audio theater time block, so I play an old-time radio show from 6 to 6.35. And I give them a little introduction, and then the shows are always stories that have tales in them, like Tales of the Texas Rangers or uh, Tales of the Witch. So I try to bring a story like that, so the audience is listening to an old-time radio show, and I tell them at the end of that show, you will hear a recording of a woman named Catherine Wyndham Tucker. She's a 92-year-old lady who was at a festival, and she talks about the meaning of storytelling. I, that's the clue when you're coming up to tell your stories. So we get that out of the way, and everybody says, okay, what are we going to do now for the next 25 minutes? And we're going to do this much faster tonight, but we go through the uh, technical parts of the uh, broadcast. For example, this is an amplified microphone. That means you do not have to talk into it like this. When you do that, it just sends the uh, recording right off the charts, and people uh, at home just hear a distorted sound. So stay back 10 to 12 inches away. We have this little screen right here, which is uh, designed to break up a person's breath. Not because the breath smells bad. I mean, I don't worry about it. But because um, we don't want to put air pressure into the microphone because what we get there is what they call plosives. And it's things like B's, P's, S's, C's, T's that pop. So this is actually called a pop filter. It helps break up the air pattern. And so we tell them, don't talk too close to it. And we're going to line it up with your throat, not your mouth. Now, that's not natural. Most people think, I've got to talk like this when you do that you got the air pumping right into the microphone. We don't want to do that. So the mic will pick up your vocal cords. It's fine. I also tell people, please don't touch the uh, microphone when you're on the air, because you may not realize it, but solids conduct sound a lot faster than air does, a lot better. So when somebody at home, if you just happen to touch this, you can't hear that, right? But at home, people are hearing boom, 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 boom. And that's what it sounds like. Some storytellers like to sit down when they talk. And one of the things people do when they're nervous is their foot moves. And they bump the, 
you know, they, they tap their foot. And now what the folks at home are hearing, boom, 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 So we have to tell them not to do that. It's all part of the technology thing. So that was basically about it on the microphone. We tell them they may sit on a stool if they'd like. They can use a podium. Some people have notes. That's one good thing about radio. You can do that. Storytellers are given 10 minutes to tell their stories. Uh, There's no ranking or rating. That's part of getting more people involved. We're not scoring anybody. Uh, And in order to keep them on track, we give them time warning. And I usually hand this to Amy, and it says two minutes. And that tells them that in two more minutes, we pull the hook out. And um, Actually, one person asked us if we did that. And no, we don't. We've never been too strict about it. We always put an extra five or ten minutes in there. And that's not going to apply today, of course. But uh, this is what we do to let people know eight minutes has gone by and they have a couple minutes left, give or take a few. We explain where the fire exits are. And Stephanie did that with you. We tell them where the bathrooms are. And for you, it's right out there to the left. And we ask people if they have any other questions. We ask that the cell phones be turned off. But we ask if there's any other questions, and um, people don't usually have any other than, when do we get started? Okay? So have I left anything off that you can think of? No? I've got them all? Okay. From Selma, Alabama, would you please welcome storyteller Miss Catherine tucker Wyndham? I can't believe I'm 92, and, but I am, and uh, my father said to me, he says, said, when you're building your life, the most important things are the four L's. And the first L is listening. And it's a rare thing these days, listening. Listening to the human voice. Listening to one person talking to another person. Listening. We have forgotten how to listen. How to sit down and talk and have a good time listening. My dad said, listen. God gave you two ears and one mouth. And he expected you to use them in that proportion. <laughs> and the next L is learning. You have to learn something different all your life. Don't ever quit learning. And laughing is the third L, he said. We've all got to laugh. Laugh at ourselves. Laugh at something every day. The world is a magical, wonderful place, he said. But we need to laugh together. Don't laugh at people, my father said. You laugh with people. And you can never hate anyone you've really laughed with. Laughter binds people together. The most important L is loving. Loving. That God put us here to love each other, to enjoy each other, to help each other, to laugh together, to learn together, to listen together, but to love each other. And there's nothing that says I love you more pleasantly and more plainly than storytelling. Everybody here has stories that you need to tell, and now is the time to do it. Tell stories and tell each one with love, ending with I love you. I love you. Thank you. Thanks to Catherine Tucker Wyndham, speaking at the age of 92 at the 2010 Alabama Storytelling Festival. I'm Amy Antonucci, here to welcome you to True Tales Radio On Stage, broadcasting from the West End Studio Theater, 959 Islington Street, Portsmouth, New Hampshire. True Tales Radio is a monthly program on WSCA LP 106.1 FM, Portsmouth Community Radio, where local people come into the studio, which is right next door at 909 Islington, 
to share their true stories with our listeners. The show has aired on the last Tuesday of the, Tuesday of the month between 6 and 8 p.m. since January 2014, which totals 19 shows with 65 different storytellers so far. Today, we are thrilled to be presenting this special off-site Sunday afternoon program with the Artists Collaborative Theater of New England. So here's how the show will go. We have eight storytellers for you today, all of whom have been heard over our airwaves previously on True Tales Radio. Pat Spaulding will introduce each teller who has 10 minute, minutes or so for their telling. We don't have, as you heard, a rating system. There's no voting, there's no judgment, there's no grading. We really are here to enjoy each person's own wonderful story that they bring us from their life. So, with that explained, I now pass the mic on to MC Pat Spaulding. Come on down, Pat. Right, thank you. It is my pleasure to know and like every single one of the storytellers that you'll be hearing today. Uh, this is happy business. <laughs> and so now let's get on with it. I suggested that we have some visuals to precede each storyteller, to show a little bit about them or the story that they might be telling. And um, when I asked Michael Lang, our first storyteller, to send us a photo of himself, he sent a nice headshot. Well, okay. I mean, but I wanted something that better represented him and his story. Mike, could you send us a photo that shows a little more about you? You know, maybe with a little more background. So... Mike sent a photo that will be coming up soon, Stephanie. There he is. <laughs> like, yes, that's the photo. That shows a little more about you, Mike. Uh-huh. For those of you who are not present here at the, the, uh, the theater, it shows Mike shirtless <laughs> and rather buff um, with a, you know, a good, strong six-pack, and I'm not talking beer. Uh, Mike is standing in the Alaskan snow fields called Turtle Flats, and the sun is shining on snow-laden mountains in the background. This photo was taken in 2005. It is Mike's last mountaineering class at UNH when he was headed for a career in outdoor education. For 10 years, he was a ropes course facilitator and wilderness guide, but he's now a writer-storyteller who works through his own small business, the Coyotes Inkwell. Please welcome onto the stage, Michael Lang with his story, The Invisible Mask. Come on up, over, Mike. It is October of 2002. I'm a sophomore at the University of New Hampshire studying outdoor education, but tonight, tonight, I'm playing my Irish drum at a social gathering on campus. Without warning, the mallet spins from between my fingers, lands on the floor, and rolls away. In an instant, it's vanished into the dark threads of the carpet. I turn to the man sitting next to me. He's dressed all in black with a ponytail down to the small of his back. Hey, man, did, did you see where that landed? He cocks his head towards me. What, are you blind? <laughs> well, yeah, actually. Did you happen to see where that landed? This mask that I wear has claimed another victim. In the stranger's defense, it's not a normal mask. It's invisible. It's intangible. 
It's the way I walk, with confident strides rather than shuffling footsteps. I don't wear dark wraparound sunglasses, well, except for when I'm mountaineering. I don't carry a white cane. I am not what people expect when they think of someone with a vision impairment. So, you're really blind? The man in black places the mallet into my outstretched hand. Well, mostly blind. I attempt my best Miracle Max impression. See, with all blinds, you got nothing but shadows. But with mostly blind, mostly, you can still partially see. The man in black begins to laugh. He, too, is familiar with the film The Princess Bride. <laughs> we talk at length during the gathering and discover that we both live in adjacent dorms. When the gathering concludes, we head on our way across campus. It turns out that the man in black is actually a fencer, and just like the Dread Pirate Roberts, he is not left-handed either. <laughs> we end up talking beneath a street lamp until well after midnight, and by the time we part ways, a friendship has formed between us, a friendship that has lasted for over a decade. I wasn't always so comfortable talking about my eyesight. When I was first diagnosed with retinitis pigmentosa, I was quite young, and I was quite frightened of all the weird tests the doctors were doing, but I have to admit, I kind of enjoyed the colorblindness test. They handed me this big book that was full of images that looked like Monet paintings gone wrong. <laughs> the first page was all green, every shade imaginable, just little dots of color all woven together. Now, Michael, find the number in this image. I stared at all the green. Do you see a number? Well, no, but I, I, I see a horde of goblins here. They're attacking a tree village. Look, there's an elf swinging down out of that... <laughs> How about you try the next one, Michael? <laughs> the next one was all reds and grays. Do you see the number five? I tried. I really tried to see the number five, but all I could see was a dragon in flight laying waste to the villages below in the mountains. And I'm not colorblind. I just have an overactive imagination. <laughs> imagination that has been fed on fantasy novels and mythology from around the world. Those were two of the many things the man in black and I discussed that first night. It was nearly a year after that fateful evening when my girlfriend and I decided we would take a trip to the Museum of Fine Arts down in Boston. Now, I normally do not enjoy museums. Generally, the experience is quite visual, and when you put art behind a shield of glass at arm's length or further, it loses something for me. But there we were, in the middle of the Impressionist gallery, staring at water lilies. I found myself thinking about my goblins and my dragon, Perhaps that's the real beauty of the Impressionist style, to paint what one sees, but allow the beholder to see what they wish. We walked on from that gallery to the next exhibit, down a long, empty hallway, but as we walked, I could see there was something ahead of us. It took shape as it drew closer. It was a brass fixture of some sort, a handle, maybe a, a doorknob, but it was floating in midair. A floating doorknob? <laughs> the universe suddenly made sense as I stumbled backwards and the custodial staff at that museum has my admiration for thanks to them I know how a bird feels when it flies headlong into a picture window <laughs> my girlfriend did ask if I was alright before she nearly doubled over laughing but I was laughing too that's how she knew I was alright we checked to make sure I hadn't broken the door when I walked into it and then we went on our way that afternoon as we walked along the streets of Boston we each had an arm around the other's shoulder a subtle nudge this way or that was the only sign that she was also serving as my sight guide while we walked. Mike, what do you see ahead of us there on the ground? I looked ahead of us and 
I could see this black streak in the middle of a gray sea of concrete. Well, maybe it's a crack in the pavement. Maybe it's a trickle of water, a, a shadow. There's a construction site right over there. Maybe, maybe the workers strung an electric cable or a hose. That's amazing how you can do that. This was the first time anyone had ever expressed envy for my eyesight. What are you talking about? No, no, just think about it. When I look at that, all I see is a crack in the pavement, but you see all these other things that it could be. I never really thought of it that way. I always thought that I was supposed to be afraid of going blind. But what if it was wondrous? What if I could look at this with a different point of view? And so I tried. The next night when I was at the school dining hall, surrounded by a sea of people, all milling about the different food stations, forming lines here and there. I looked about, and there, beside every dinner option, was a small card with tiny print on it. And like the art at the museum, they were all shielded behind glass, too far away to be of any use to me. And so I reached out with tongs and ladles into the unknown, helping myself to this and that. Then found my way to the usual table, where the man in black and my girlfriend were waiting. One of our neighbors from the dorm in which we all lived now had joined us, and as I sat down, I could see a cringe of disgust ripple through her. <laughs> it, was, it was like a full-body contortion. What? What have I done? Your food is touching. <laughs> she has this thing about foods touching one another that weren't meant to be together. The man in black laughs. You have shepherd's pie. How is that any different from what Mike is eating? I look down at my plate, and this is the point where I realize the absurdity of his statement. I'm not sure what disgusted our neighbor, whether it was the hamburger that fell out of its bun into a pool of ketchup, or maybe it was the mountain of mashed potatoes that fell over everything, or the apple pie that had exploded, washing peas and carrots down the slope of Mount Potato in an avalanche of green and orange. I shrugged and enjoyed my apple-glazed potatoes. <laughs> Our neighbor screamed and hastily excused herself. This mask of mine had claimed another victim. But it's all right, and she'll be all right. After all, I didn't mean to disgust her. I didn't mean to tear down the walls of segregation between the food groups. <laughs> but you know, I think I will be all right wearing this mask. Along with a little imagination, some wonder, and a different point of view, I think I'm going to enjoy whatever the future brings, even if I don't see it quite the same as everyone else. The Invisible Mask. Thanks a lot, everybody. Glad you enjoyed it. Thank you, Michael Lang. Now I'd like to um, <laughs> welcome onto the stage a friend of mine, Carol Clapp. We're going to show first a 50s vintage photo of Carol standing in front of the family car. She has a tight grip on her Roy Rogers lunchbox and a look of extreme apprehension in her eyes while her younger sister Susie and baby brother Matthew happily stand beside her. Neither of them is headed away from the family, away from the farm for their very first day, but Carol is. Carol is a writer who has published a memoir about growing up on a farm in Epping, New Hampshire, titled Till the Cows Come Home. The story she'll tell us this afternoon is part of her book. Now, unlike the moth, True Tales Radio 
does not require its tellers not to use notes, as is obvious from me, using my notes. And um, we want to encourage people in every form of their writing or comfort level of telling new people to come tell stories. So we welcome writers to read their stories if that's what they choose to do. Carol wants you to know that this is her very first time doing anything on stage. So here she comes now, dressed up for the occasion in her brand new cowgirl dress. And <laughs> Mary Jane's shoes. One is stained a little bit more than the other, and she will explain why. Carol, your story, my first day of school. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much, Pat. And... Uh, this is very much like my first day of school, and <laughs> hope you bear with me. It's called My First Day of School. No, 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 I screamed and held on tighter and tighter. My fingers would not loosen their grip on our Ford's steering wheel as my mother tried to pull me out of the car. She tugged my legs straight out through the door. It felt like I was being sucked through a porthole on Flash Gordon's spaceship, but I held on. I don't want to go to school, I yelled. It was my first day of first grade, and I was already a disgrace. My new cowgirl dress slid up around my waist and revealed fresh, yellow, Sears Robot catalog underpants. But I didn't care. They wouldn't have me. They would not. My babysitter, Janice, had taught me all about public school, and I wasn't going without a fight. <laughs> mean women ran the place. <laughs> Janice said they had warts on their noses and yelled at kids all the time. Mrs. Quimby, Miss Odeon, and the biggest battle axe of all, Mrs. Beecher, the first grade teacher. <laughs> Mom coaxed and cajoled, begged me to stop crying and behave, assured me that I had to go to school. A bell had already rung. Mothers were standing by. She'll be all right, Mom told them, dropping my ankles. <laughs> I had never acted this way before. She's only five. She's only five, born in October, like next week. So she's probably starting a year earlier than she should. Sounded good to me. I shouldn't be here. I haven't even gone to kindergarten. Suddenly, Mom was gone. I flopped back across the front seat and continued crying over my woeful situation. Maybe Mom would tell them, sorry, she's not ready. We'd better take the extra year. I didn't know. All I knew was I wanted to go home. People walked past the car on both sides. Several looked in at me, and another bell rang. Then, my, then Janice, my babysitter, stuck her head in through the window and hissed down on my face. You'd better get in there. They've gone to get the principal, Miss Odeon. She's really mean, and she hits kids with a ruler with a metal edge on it. <laughs> If you don't do what she says, you're done for. I sat up crying hard again and watched my babysitter run across Main Street toward the high school. 
what now? Should I start running too while I still had a chance? But here they came, mom and an ugly tall woman who had to be Miss Odeon. You need to come with me right now, the woman said firmly. I couldn't look up at her. You have to, Mom pleaded. I'll stay with you. Bring your lunchbox. <laughs> Defeated and sick, I took Mom's hand and entered the scary brick building, whimpering. It was like walking into a meat locker. Instantly cold and dark, and it smelled funny, like pee. I could feel the stink getting on me. Miss Odeon pointed to my name, Carol, in the hall. Put your lunchbox on the floor there under your hook, she said. It was my Roy Rogers and Dale Evans lunchbox, and I hated leaving it alone there. I tried to stop crying, but continued gasping as Mom kept her hand on my shoulder and guided me into the sunny room where Mrs. Beecher and my future classmates for the next 12 years all turned to look at me. One girl sat sobbing with her head down on her desk. This must be our missing Carol, the fat teacher said, twisting a white handkerchief with both hands. I couldn't stand to look at her face. And what was that thing on her head, squashing her hair? I'd never seen a hairnet before. <laughs> Mom nudged me toward the one remaining empty desk and baby chair. She knelt and whispered into my ear, you'll be okay, try to have fun. I'll stand that back there in the hall. You can see me through the window in the door. I tried to settle down and finally did stop crying sooner than that other sad girl, Linda Freeman. She carried on for another two days. It really helped to have my mother standing outside the door. I must have turned to look at her 20 times just to make sure she was still there. And then, well, who, who knows how long it takes for a mother to decide to duck out. She was gone. No mummy in the window. So I put my head down on my desk and I cried just like Linda. <laughs> Before long, I slid my chair back to breathe better, resting my forehead on the edge of the desk. My eyes and nose dripped tears and snot onto my pretty dress. School smell wafted up from the floor where I saw traces of blue sawdust. The smell wasn't pee at all, but a stink they made on purpose for cleaning. It smelled worse than the cow yard. I gazed down on my new shoes and suffered another spasm of grief. They were T-strap Mary Janes, the color of ox blood. At least that's what it said on the can of kiwi polish we bought to keep them nice. The left shoe was stained and dull, while the right one was shiny red the way it should have been. Have you noticed this? <laughs> okay. I became acutely homesick for the farm. I kept thinking of the word ox blood. It made me ache for the cows, the blood 
the barn, and especially for my two-year-old brother, Matthew, who I had pulled out of the manure pit two days earlier. <laughs> my stained shoe reminded me of the incident. The previous Saturday, Mom had taken me on a, shoe, on a school shopping spree to buy a pencil case and footwear. At Moody's Shoe Store, we settled on my oxblood Mary Janes. A clerk measured my feet. He comment, commented on their toughness and width. You go barefoot a lot, he guessed. I always went barefoot. The shoes felt clunky and they hurt even at the store. Back home, mom suggested that I try to break them in by wearing them for a couple hours each day. She said I'd get blisters, but maybe they wouldn't burst if I conditioned my feet slowly. So during the week before school, I marched and dashed around the farm, the farmyard, taming the shoes as they chafed my heels and little toes. I was in this state of preparedness when my little sister Susie came running. She's gone, okay. <laughs> Matthew's in the manure pit, she screamed. He's drowning. So I, I kicked my shoes into gear and ran after her toward the barn. It was obvious what had happened. Tractor tires had dug two deep ruts into the manure pit under the four-story barn and had churned muck into a bilious green soup. So a load of sand had been dumped in to absorb it overnight unintentionally creating a treacherous toddler trap, an attractive sand pile to climb up on, which our baby brother had done, and then slide down, which Matthew also did, into a pool of cold manure soup. <laughs> well, there he was rolling over and over in one of the green pools as if he was a donut in Mum's Friolator. <laughs> totally green. This crawler had become a, had become a St. Patrick's Day cruller. <laughs> and his manure-laden diaper was taking him down for what could have been the last time. I looked at Matthew. He wasn't crying. He held his breath with his eyes closed as he rolled in the muck. Get him out, Susie cried. I looked down at my bare legs and my new shoes and my white socks. Mostly it was the new shoes that made me hesitate. Get him out, she cried again. After glancing one last time at my left shoe, I deliberately and, de and deeply sank into the cold muck that came up to my knee. I grabbed, onto Matthew, I grabbed up Matthew with both hands and chucked him onto the sand at Susie's feet. We both just stood there waiting until finally Matthew let out a wail to rival the fire siren downtown we ended up sharing a bath in hot, green manure water. <laughs> How I missed my little brother as I kept my head down on that first day of school. 
I missed Judy, my Jersey cow, and my calf, Greta, and my cat, Softpaw, and Tippy the dog. I wanted to go home. I, I really wanted my mother. Life on the farm never looked better than when I was torn away to start school. It was actually a gift to my brothers and sisters that I was so unprepared for first grade because after that, all seven of my younger siblings attended private kindergarten. <laughs> and having saved Matthew's life, he was all too happy to return the favor 15 years later when I almost rolled the tractor over onto myself. But that is another story, and I thank you very much. <laughs> Clap. I would like the photo to come up uh, as before I introduce our next storyteller. Is that a great kiss or what? <laughs> it was taken several years ago of Sharon Rhodes and her husband Ralph. Sharon's head is thrown back, her hair, thick hair flows over her shoulders as Ralph leans down to kiss her well and very romantically. Seeing and feeling their connection with each other. How can we not fall in love with both of these people? Sharon was one of our very first volunteer storytellers who came to the station for the debut of True Tales Radio back in January 2014 when our theme was beginnings. This photo and the story she'll share with us speak of deep love. And now I'd like to welcome onto the stage Sharon Rhodes to tell her story, One Crow. That's how I got my mail for 20 years. <laughs> I'm going to say it, Vicki. I said I wouldn't, but it gives a whole new meaning to junk mail. <laughs> and actually referring to that photo, that um, ironically, that was <clears throat> the end of door-to-door -door delivery that day in our neighborhood. They put up boxes. They made it look like a good thing with ribbons, etc. It wasn't. Mailmen are the guardians of neighborhoods. They have the potential to see something's wrong before it's too late. And I want to dedicate my story to Carl and Dennis. Ralph's got you. One crow. <clears throat> a lone crow flew so low overhead as we approached the urologist's office that morning it almost touched us. I remember thinking it was a bad omen, as it portends a death to some. And if that wasn't enough, my maiden name means crow. Two weeks earlier, Ralph's primary doctor had sent him for a long overdue biopsy, and we were here for the results. Mr. Rhodes, you have a very advanced, aggressive form of prostate cancer, terminal the doctor said in what I'm sure he believed was a compassionate tone. Ralph pitched forward and dropped his head into his hands. I had never seen Ralph waver, and I had witnessed him intervene in a violent stabbing in our neighborhood 
saving the life of a young woman with his arm in a sling. I just met this doctor. I placed my hand on Ralph's back, leaned forward, and asked, What do we do now? Ralph had never been sick or hospitalized and faithfully got his yearly checkup from his PCP, who was also an an oncologist. Ralph was the salt of my earth, and his strong brown body, capped by a regal silver crown, lent proof. Seventeen years earlier, I had gone on a blind, but now I see date with him. (laughs) Meaning, although he had been my mailman for many years, I never really saw him. I told him what was going on in my life, figuring it would be our first and last date. But instead, I got a card in the mail from him, with a canceled stamp no less, meaning he didn't sneak it in, he mailed it. (laughs) And he wrote, cheer up, you sweet, kind person. Things will get better. We fell in love, got married, and he freed me from a life of abuse and neglect by handing me a key in the form of unconditional positive regard. I didn't know the term at the time. That would come later. But it means if at least one significant person in your life makes you feel loved and respected just as you are, you can be all you can be. Be all that you can be. Just like the Army recruitment jingle, but it's unconditional. (laughs) Or as a great line from the movie Sideways puts it in wine speak, Pino needs constant care and attention. Only somebody who really takes the time to understand Pino's full potential can then coax it into its fullest expression. I was divorced, raising two teenage girls, and had four part-time jobs when Ralph and I met. I was living in fear that I wouldn't be able to afford to keep a roof over our heads or send them to college to avoid my fate. He not only helped me do those things, but he insisted I go to college. Having barely graduated high school as a teenage mother with less than stellar grades, it was something I had never considered. He insisted. I entered my first lecture hall at UNH petrified, surrounded by students half my age, some who initially mistook me for their professor. (laughs) I throve. I graduated magna. It was there I learned the term unconditional positive regard and so much more. Alma mater means fostering mother, and the name Ralph means counselor. I recently came across this paperwork because I had to do some investigating for the VA, and it was from 1969 by one of Ralph's supervisors. Strengths. Staff Sergeant Rhodes is a creative individual with an inquisitive mind who has an uncanny ability to visualize the necessity for corrective action. His greatest assets are his complete dependability and tireless devotion to duty. His versatility and value to any organization is evidenced by his capability to perform in any section in the absence of assigned personnel. Anyone who's ever been hit full-on by a high-speed runaway train while standing by the tracks gazing in the opposite direction without a single care in the world and lived to tell about it, knows how we felt that morning in the doctor's office. I tried everything I could to save Ralph. 
We navigated the cancer tsunami much like our first and last kayaking trip years ago in the stinky hot Florida mangroves during a downpour. <laughs> Me in the front, pointing and grasping. Ralph in the back, suffering stoically at every turn. I couldn't save him. No one could. Things didn't get better. He worked as long as he could doing what he loved and held on long enough to meet and bond with his grandson, Jacob. Jake, we call him, who was born very early, no doubt, to help us all with Ralph's passing. <clears throat> the name Jake means just right. Ralph died at home with me. I won't say it was peaceful, and I can't tell you he was surrounded by all his loved ones when he took his last breath. Death has its own agenda. But we cared for him while he was dying. He was never alone. A tidal wave of grief hit, and then another. I was diagnosed late with aggressive lymphoma. I underwent some treatments and procedures that Ralph did, and at the same two hospitals. I sent myself a things will get better card. I washed up on a foreign beach. Today and every day I wake up alone on that same beach and I set out to see a crow. I barely know. And the world with love and compassion. Thanks to Ralph. And I'd like to end with a quote by Kevin Costner because he did a movie called The Postman and when he did that movie he sent a postcard to every mailman in the country. I happened to find the one he sent Ralph in a book not too long ago. The Postman. My postman knew the name of every kid on my street. I can still see the smile on his face, the tip of his cap, when he had a letter in his bag with my name on it. I don't think we ever really understood what they meant to us until they were gone. Getting a letter made you feel like you were part of something bigger than yourself. No place was ever too far away for the postman. So that meant nobody ever had to be alone. The postman was someone you could count on. Things just made more sense when they were around. Thank you. Sharon. Next, we have some photos that represent the different stages in the life of Charles Everett Worth, the father of Craig Worth. Charlie was born in Brooklyn, New York on November 3rd, 1925, and according to Craig, was a man who often chose quality over quantity. Therefore, Charlie had only a few very close friends but he had a special long-standing relationship with one of them, and that's the story we'll hear this afternoon. Craig refers to this as a song story, a story that inspired the creation of a song, which he will also share with us. And now, I would like to welcome onto the stage musician, songwriter, storyteller, Craig Worth, with his song story, Charlie's Friend in a Box. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. 
I'm still affected from the previous stories, listening <laughs> back there. It's a, quite a powerful time for me. But I'm here to tell mine. Um, Charlie Worth uh, has been gone two and a half years now. But he was a big role model for me, a, a complicated and wonderful man. And he was quite a storyteller himself, um, my first role model for singing and for storytelling. And I thought I knew every story he had, because we kids uh, uh, would gather around him at the end of his long work days on occasion in the stairwell, and he would just tell stories. And one of them was about the baby bird that he found on a sidewalk, and he raised with an eyedropper and his own special recipe of insect soup. <laughs> and he took care of that bird until it flew off his hand one day into the sky and was not seen again. Um, that was a great story. Another was when he was practicing with his bow and arrow in the backyard and he missed his intended target and sent an arrow through the window of his neighbor's house. <laughs> and then, being my father, a very practical young man or boy, he knocked on the door to retrieve his only arrow. So, <laughs> <laughs> that would not be something I would do. I'd, break, I'd bury my bow and never talk about it again. But I heard a brand new story which surprised me at, at um, Pop's memorial service when uh, I helped host it with my siblings, and it was a, it was a lovely time. Um, and we invited folks to come up to the microphone and, and share some, some thoughts about Dad and... Uh, I was really surprised when his cousin Richard came from the back of the room where he was standing very quietly, because he, Richard's a very sweet and very quiet man, very shy. I've had some, even when he would talk to you, his head would go down a little bit, and just a really lovely man, but um, my father's closest cousin in childhood. And Richard stood in front of all these people and told a story, this, this story was brand new to me, to all of us, about the day Dad was visiting at Richard's house in Brooklyn, New York, where they were from. And they got word that the first ever television set was going to move in across the street. Now, they'd heard of television, of this magical miracle of television. But a real television was coming <coughs> across the street from Richard's house. And it was delivered in the morning and they glued their faces to Richard's living room window, watching for proof of the first TV, as far as they knew, in the universe. And there came the light. So with these boys' faces pressed against this glass, they looked across a street in Brooklyn into the window of someone else's living room and saw this bluish-gray illumination come on and little shadowy shapes moving. And that's where their faces stayed for two hours. Until my father spoke, broke the silence, saying, we need binoculars. <laughs> and Richard's not sure how he did it, but he, my father got his very thrifty dad, Henry, to drive an hour's round trip to go get a pair of binoculars from home, bring them back to Richard's house, and they spent another 
two hours looking through those binoculars. The rest of the family joined them at the window, so they had to swap with six different people. Three neighborhood kids came in. There's a total of nine. It's my turn. No, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Something's happening over there. They're watching television through the window across the street um, for a number of hours. And it's, uh, it was the day and the moments when my dad fell in love with his new great friend, television, <laughs> who stuck with him throughout his lifetime, uh, providing uh, surely entertainment, many things I, I never saw, but, but I know the Jackie Gleason show, and, he, and, he, and he, in my day he was watching Disney and Wild Kingdom, and uh, so he loved that. But it was also his greatest buddy at any social gathering. My dad, a very shy man, uh, really found conversation difficult, even with his, his own children. So if you went to any place with dad, visited anybody, to find him, you just need to listen for the television blaring in some corner of the house. And there was my dad, in some easy chair if he could find one, quietly watching and listening at a volume about eight notches above comfortable for most of us, um, the nearest television set, and basking in the glow of that and protected by the noise and the light from that TV, from awkward exchange with silly human beings much of the time. So to visit with that, you just plopped yourself in a chair next to him, which he was grateful for, by the way. He didn't mind sharing that TV space with, with anybody. And he'd say, how are things going, Craig? And you go, oh, fine, Pop, how about you? Oh, pretty well. That's it. <laughs> That's the heart-to-heart -heart with Dad. <laughs> and you know what? I was thankful for that TV, too. I was, I was basking in his protection, too, because it wasn't easy for me to, to talk, especially with my dad from the heart. So... Um, after hearing that story from Richard, I, um, I am primarily a songwriter uh, and a storyteller second, or I sometimes put stories in my songs. All of my songs are inspired by stories. That's the story that inspired this song. Within a couple days, I wrote this uh, piece that I'm going to sing for you called Mr. Barker's Magic Box. Some of the details are changed with storytelling and um, songwriting license, but the... Uh, the thought of this TV and its role in my dad's life and, and its role in my life, quite honestly, and my laptop and my iPhone, it's all in there. It's all in here. Word wound down the road, Mr. Barker bought a box it's filled with moving pictures It even sings and talks Well, I heard they'd been invented But I never thought I'd see Such a wondrous gadget Lands so close to me Our neighbor is the banker Who owns the empty barn Across the way from the Barker place well, it could do no harm if I climbed up to the window. Pretty certain I could see. That magic box at the Barker house sounds like a plan to me. 
I grabbed the old binoculars Dad had from the war I was on a secret mission One I'd not been on before And I climbed up quick and quiet Best sneak that I could do Soon as I peeked across the street I saw that magic blue And I watched through those binoculars Till my eyes were dry and red It was a man's head talking Couldn't see what words he said But they must have been important And I sure wish that I could hear Gonna find myself a magic box By this time next year And if it takes me longer Well that's just how it goes When I set my mind to something Everybody knows that I will make it happen This head's not filled with rocks I'll find a way to get the pay To buy my magic box I'll find some work for money Take on some extra chores And if that's insufficient Well, I'll take on even more I'd bake some cakes, do what it takes I'd scrub somebody's floor To earn the dough, the green cash flow Then hit the magic store Of course, here in the country There isn't much to do Not much for money anyway I'd better think this through Well, I could hawk my box of treasures Could trade my tiny cars Heck, I'd fetch a pretty penny if I sold this old guitar. I would fetch a pretty penny if I sold this old guitar. to WSCA LP 106.1 FM Portsmouth Community Radio. This is True Tales Radio. I'm your announcer, Amy Antonucci. And now for a short intermission. <laughs> well, Stephanie's getting set up. I'll just welcome you back to True Tales Radio on WSCA LP. FM, Portsmouth Community Radio, broadcasting here from Portsmouth, New Hampshire. I want to be sure that everybody knows that uh, this show is being recorded for future broadcast at the station. So why don't we give all those folks out there in Radio Land a big hand? We begin our second set. Now we're going to have a photo come up of Al Porsche. Oh, sorry. I started too soon. I should have just been blabbing a little bit more. Okay, there he is. Yes, this is Al Porsche. 
1969 in Vietnam, wearing jungle fatigues. He is standing inside the tall barbed wire fence that surrounds a base camp 20 miles north of Saigon. Al had finished his stint of jungle combat as an infantryman and was now ending his tour of duty in what he refers to as being in the rear with the gear. <laughs> Drafted in 1968, Al was a reluctant soldier who, many years after serving his time in the military, became a counselor for veterans to help them manage and heal the emotional and spiritual wounds resulting from their war experiences. The story he'll tell us tonight is a war story, but one with a unique twist. Let's welcome Al Portia to the stage with his story, Honolulu on Two Cents a Day. As Pat mentioned, I would like to tell a war story that's a bit different. And before I start, since it is a war story, I wanted to share with you a quote from Tim O'Brien. Tim O'Brien wrote, wrote a wonderful war memoir called The Things They Carried. And this is what he had to say about war stories. He said, a true war story is never moral. It does not instruct, it does not encourage virtue, nor does it suggest proper human behavior. If a war story seems moral, don't believe it. Now here's my story. <laughs> It's August 1969, and for the second time in four months, I'm on a plane headed to Vietnam. Unlike that first flight, this time I'm on a commercial civilian airliner with a stop in Honolulu and then ultimately going to Saigon, Vietnam. That earlier flight in April of 1969, I was on a military transport out of an Air Force base in New Jersey with 165 other GIs. We left very early, before dawn, on a Saturday morning. And when we arrived in Vietnam, it was Monday afternoon. The Miss Sunday, I was told, due to crossing the international dateline, was Easter Sunday. I immediately considered it an inauspicious start to my time in Vietnam. I'd missed the celebration of the resurrection. I spent the next three months as an infantry soldier in the jungles of South Vietnam. And as you might well imagine, those were very frightening and dangerous times. But that's not the story I wish to share with you this afternoon. Due to circumstances that were very unusual, that will have to be a story for another time also, I was sent home for a 30-day leave after those three months in the jungle with the requirement that at the end of those 30 days, I had to return to Vietnam to complete the remaining nine months of my 12-month tour of duty. I don't have a lot of clear memory of what took place during that 30 days. It's all a bit of a blur, in part, no doubt, to the sudden transfer from jungle combat back to being on the streets of America, and the ever-present knowledge that within 30 days, I was going to have to be back in Vietnam. So I would ask that you would consider my precarious state of mind as somewhat explanatory for my behavior over the next several days. Thus it was, I found myself on the streets of San Francisco with very little money in my pocket and a one-way ticket 
heading back to Vietnam for the next morning. So I decided, like many soldiers before me and many soldiers since, to try to drink as much alcohol as I possibly could <laughs> before my next day's departure to a very uncertain fate. The problem was I didn't have much money. But I did have a rather nice watch, and I was able to pawn that for 50 bucks. And I seem to recall selling a pint of blood to the Red Cross, you could do that in those days, for another 15. So having put together my grub steak, I proceeded to visit many, many bars that evening, including the revolving bar at the top of the Fairmont Hotel on Knob Hill. Now this choice significantly diminished my meager financial resources, <laughs> but it did afford me a beautiful vista of a gorgeous city that many consider to be the Paris of the United States. The next morning finds me at the San Francisco International Airport, disheveled, clearly hungover, and with exactly six cents in cash left in my pocket. I got on the plane, oblivious to, for the most part to my fellow travelers. Seemed like there was a, half of them were tourists going to Hawaii, no doubt with thoughts of sun and fun on pristine Hawaiian beaches. And the other half was various government types, who knows, CIA, what have you, military types, clearly with thoughts less sanguine on our mind. My own thoughts were quite bleak and grim, knowing that within 24 hours, I was going to be back in Vietnam. That's when the plane stopped to refuel and let those sun and fun tourists <laughs> off in Hawaii. Without any premeditation, I impulsively got off the plane, <laughs> walked into the terminal with all those tourists, went up to the Pan Am ticket counter, and said, I'd like to take a delay in route, spend a few days in Hawaii, and then proceed on to Vietnam. Is that possible? Amazingly, they said, yeah, that's no problem at all. <laughs> we'll rewrite your ticket. It'll be open for when you're ready to continue on with the rest of your journey. Now, of course, if you've been following the story, you're saying to yourself, what's he going to do in Hawaii with six cents in his pocket? And I was pondering that question myself, and I was sustaining myself on pineapple juice from the free juice dispenser located in the airport lobby, compliments of the Dole Pineapple Company. <laughs> and I became aware that there were many, many soldiers passing through this terminal, and a lot of them were in excellent spirits. They were on their way home from Vietnam. Well, I'd never tried panhandling before, but you know what they say about necessity and invention. And I guess when I started asking soldiers that were passing through if they had any spare change for an ex-GI on the skids, given my experiences of the previous evening on the streets of San Francisco, it didn't seem too far-fetched. <laughs> so within a matter of several hours, I'd gotten together enough money that I was able to get a haircut, a shave, shoe shine, shower, bite to eat, change into some nice clothes, and stash the remaining clothes and luggage in an airport coin-operated locker. Airport terminals have changed quite a bit since then, <laughs> needless to say. I then proceeded to hitchhike into Honolulu, and I went to the Waikiki beach area of the city. My plan now was to bluff my way into a beachfront hotel. <laughs> I picked out what appeared to be the most luxurious hotel on the Strip, the Royal Hawaiian, mm -hmm. a.k.a. the Pink Palace. I walked in, Natalie attired, if I do say so, went up to the registration counter, 
and asked the desk clerk for a room. Of course, it was immediately at this point that I had to inform him that unfortunately, I didn't have any money on me at this point in time. And I explained to him that I was on the beginning of several months of travel, worldwide travel, and that I'd left all my money, most of my money, which was in traveler's checks, in a different sports jacket pocket that was packed in my luggage. And I said, compounding this blunder, the airline forgot to pull my bags when I landed in, in Honolulu this morning when I came in from San Francisco. And worse yet, they tell me the plane was going on to Vietnam, of all places. And it's, it's going to be several days before I can get my luggage back. Incredibly, this worked. <laughs> I showed them identification in my real name, and... I did nothing to dissuade the hotel manager, who of course by this time had joined the hotel clerk, from his mistaken assumption that I was a member of the family that makes the Porsche automobile. <laughs> I'm, I, I can't, I'm not clear on this. I might have made some mention of Uncle Ferdinand and Cousin Farrah Porsche. I don't know. But uh, in any event, I checked into a beautiful oceanfront room and I was able to sign my name for everything. Meals, bar tab, room service. There was an excellent men's haberdashery in the lobby. I bought some very nice clothes. So you're probably thinking, uh, boy, I'm having the time of my, my life. But of course, that wasn't the case because I knew that ultimately I'm going back to Vietnam. And now, in addition to that, I'm paranoid that at any moment the hotel is going to discover my true status and they're going to haul me away in handcuffs. So after living large in the lap of luxury, spending three days in that hotel, I walked out, hitchhiked back to the airport, got on a plane, and went to Vietnam. When I got back to Vietnam, I wasn't surprised that there weren't any negative consequences for being a few days late for my leave. I mean, what were they going to do? Send me to Vietnam? <laughs> but towards the end of my 12-month tour of duty, with about a month left to go, when I was in the rear with the gear, like that picture that was up there before, I was called in by the CID. That's the Criminal Investigation Division of the Army. Sort of like the FBI of the Army. And they wanted to talk to me about a potential charge of financial irresponsibility. <laughs> well, like you now, I knew what that referred to immediately. <laughs> Fortunately, the hotel, they just wanted their money, which I was only too happy to pay. And neither they nor the military had any interest in pursuing the matter further. I completed the rest of my tour of duty, came back to the States, ended my military service. And like many combat veterans, spent several years as a pretty alienated character uh, trying to readjust to life in America after the experiences of having been in a war. Fortunately, after a few years, I was able to settle down and have been able to live a relatively stable life. Which brings me to one last event that happened in my life that's connected to this story. It's 1992, and I'm living in Lee, New Hampshire, with my wife, my 12-year-old daughter, nine-year-old son. And we had the opportunity to trade houses with a family in Honolulu for an entire month. And we had the most marvelous vacation. 
And as you might well imagine, my state of mind was considerably improved from my last visit to Hawaii. Of course, I had to see the hotel. If for no other reason, just to remind myself that these events actually happened. <laughs> we went down to the, uh, the hotel, and it was as beautiful, luxurious, and as expensive as I remembered it. We decided to splurge and have a lunch on the veranda overlooking that beautiful beach at the hotel. Had a great meal. At the end, when the waiter brought the check, I reached for my wallet, <laughs> and I was about to pull out a credit card, and I turned to my wife, who of course knew the story well, and I said, it's, of course it's very unlikely that anyone would remember, but just to be safe, I think I'll use cash. <laughs> <laughs> Next up, we have a storyteller who you've already met, been introduced to her. She is also our True Tales radio announcer, Amy Antonucci. Now, instead of sharing a photo of herself, Amy decided to display a photo which will be coming up soon. Yes of the housing units of many of the main characters in the story that she is going to tell. Yes, beehives. Cozy little condos where bees can mingle, thrive, and produce honey. Bees are currently being threatened, as we all know. We need more healthy bees. And no one recognizes the importance of bees more than Amy, who lives on a small permaculture farm with her partner, Steve. When Amy recognizes a problem, well, she does something about it. The story that she'll share with us this afternoon is about her first experience as a migratory beekeeper. Let's welcome back to the stage Amy Antonucci with her story, Be Move Moving. Be Moving. All right, thanks, Pat. Um, when I first told my partner, Steve, that I wanted to keep bees, he said, you're going to put thousands of stinging insects into our yard on purpose? <laughs> but after a few years of not really getting stung and getting honey, he had developed a fondness for them, and was even helping me out a little bit in the bee yard, mostly with heavy lifting. He had even started to express interest in taking on what are called pollination contracts. It's where um, beekeepers move their hives, like you saw before, to um, farmers' fields, or especially orchards, during bloom time. I was really happy that he was interested and um, excited about the bees, but I was not so clear that it was going to be worth it or uh, easy to move these big, heavy boxes filled with stinging insects anywhere. So what could I say? I, I wasn't convinced. We did get a chance, though to give this a try when we heard about some folks in the Hampton, New Hampshire area, who were selling off their hives at a good price. So we suited up, 
And we got into Steve's van and we went to check it out. So we went down this dirt road to a field with about, I don't know, 40 or 50 hives. Now, a hive usually, this is um, probably August, maybe starting into September. That time of year, a healthy hive should have something like 50,000 bees per hive. Um, so, and we weren't the only interested buyers. There were others, and some of them were newer to this and hadn't thought about this part of it. So there was a fair amount of swatting and running, a little screaming, and definitely some stings. But we were good. We had our suits. We were, we were you know, professionals here, we felt like. So um, we checked out the hives, and they looked good enough for us to buy a couple. We picked them out and started on the work of securing them for the ride home. So for those, how many beekeepers here? Any beekeepers? There's a beekeeper, yes. So this um, won't be news to you, but the, for the rest of you, what a beehive is made out of are these boxes, rectangular boxes, which are four-sided. The top and the bottom is open. And they're stacked on top of each other. They have frames in them, and that's where the bees do their business of living and making honey and all that kind of stuff. There's a top cover and a bottom board, which is usually has an opening, but these folks had put um, screening into the ones that were possibly being sold to keep the bees in the hive to take them away. Got it? Our job was just to, we had brought these nylon straps and we were going to ratchet them around the hives, kind of like wrapping them up like a present so we could move them around. Now, usually people move beehives on trucks. And as I mentioned before, we actually had a van, and a small van, a minivan, um, with a back door, not a side door. So when we went to put the hives into the back, what we found out is they were a little too tall. Now, you don't really want to tip a hive on its side. There's kind of those frames are kind of move around, and they can squish bees, and they will definitely annoy bees. Upset bees, okay? Um, but we had very few options, and we were kind of committed at this point. So Steve got the seller to help us, and we kind of, just a little bit of a tip, and got through that, that opening part, and it could sit upright in, in the van. So we did that with the two hives, and I was feeling pretty relieved and happy that it seemed to have worked out. The seller pulled me aside, though and mentioned that when he was helping Steve move the hives in, it felt to him like the boxes of one hive had shifted, <laughs> which would mean that the seal had kind of cracked, and there could be an opening now where the bees could come and go. So with, he, he said, you know, you know, maybe you want to wear your suits all the way home. <laughs> I said... Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. So um, at this point, we understood where we were at. We got on the road quickly. We wanted to get ourselves to Dover fast. Um, it was not long before I saw evidence of this once potential, now clearly real, crack in the hive. First, it was just a bee or two. 
maybe they'd be hanging on the outside of the hive. Maybe that was good. Then it was a few more bees. And then, well, it was a lot of bees that had left the hive and were now in the car proper with us. And they were mostly attracted to the light at the windows. To the point where the back of the car was starting to get a little bit dark. Okay. <laughs> so we were all still, you know, we were suited up, so I wasn't that worried about getting stung, but it felt to me like it could be really distracting to the driver to realize that a cloud of bees was swarming around him, right? My first defense against this was just to downplay the situation. I said, you know, I think a few bees have gotten out, <laughs> but it's really not that bad. It's really not that bad. Then I began to construct a barrier between us in the front seat and the rest of the van, mostly just to try to continue with this fiction that the bees were contained. So I found we had camping gear in there. We had one of these mattress pads that's shaped like an egg carton. And I managed to scoot around and get it tucked up behind like the seatbelt holders. So, you know, it was distracting enough I thought he wouldn't really notice. Um, but the bees actually started to pop out from behind the barrier into the front of the car, which started to, I think, give Steve a clue as to what the situation really was. It was around this time that we had to admit to ourselves another problem. We were running out of gas. <laughs> Being stranded like this was unthinkable, right? So we stopped at a gas station around Stratum. When the engine stopped, we turned to each other. Steve said, let's open the windows and let all these bees out. <laughs> and I said, I just paid for all these bees. He deferred to me. So we, one, two, three, jumped out of the car. He had to go fill up the gas tank, me to go around and make sure all the little windows were shut. We had some of those manual kind and stuff. Make sure my, the bees were contained in there. Now, remember that we were in our bee suits. <laughs> These are full body coverings, mostly white. And we were not alone at the pumps. This was like a sunny weekend in Stratum in the middle of the day. And um, not that far from like Seabrook and not too long from 2001. So we were kind of a picture. The man at the next pump over turned and he was just openly staring. And he said to us, to me, is there something you people know? <laughs> that the rest of us should know. I just told him truthfully, sir, if you aren't traveling with us, you're fine. We did, of course, have to continue traveling with ourselves and these many thousands of bees. We did make it into Dover with most of the bees, got the hives out and placed with minimal number of stings, and get them all settled in by the evening. Steve, however, has never suggested moving bees for pollination again. <laughs> Thank you.
Thank you, Amy. We're going to be bringing Andy Davis up next with a photo of himself taken in 1984 when Andy was traveling in France. Notice the dark beret, the dark aviator sunglasses, a rather scruffy beard, a big bulky sweater. Andy looks like the seasoned traveler he was at the time, one who's been on the road away from home for many, many months. He was in his idealistic, idealistic 20s. His world was expanding, and he could do most anything he chose to do. During that period of his life, he worked to save money so that he could travel for months at a time, exploring different countries, meeting different people all over the world. And let us now welcome Andy Davis with his story, Private Garage. What a handsome devil. <laughs> Thanks, Pat. When my father was growing up in Sharon, Mass, uh, on Memorial Day or Armistice Day, he'd go with his father to stand beneath the elms on East Street and watch the parade wind its way up to the Rocky Ridge Cemetery. The color guard would go by, and then the junior high band, and after that, the World War I vets, and the high school band, and the Spanish-American War vets. And at the very end, sitting ramrod straight in the back of a convertible, were two weasened old men in faded uniforms that might once have been blue the last surviving Union vets of the Civil War. And my grandfather would look down and squeeze my dad's hand and say, Alan, someone from our family's been in every war this country ever fought. Well, my father's chance to carry on the family tradition came along soon enough. He signed up as soon as he could and when he turned 18, he was off to Germany, where he fought in the Ruhr Pocket and at Remagen Bridge and Ingolstadt. And when the war ended in Europe, he was sent to the Pacific, where he was on a ship bound for Japan when the bombs dropped. Now, when I was growing up, in small towns on the coast of Maine. On Memorial Day, I'd go with my father to stand where the elms used to be and watch the parade. And the color guard would go by and the junior high band and then the Vietnam vets and the high school band and the Korean War vets and the World War II vets and all the way at the end sitting up in the back of a convertible was the last cluster of veterans of the First World War. And my father would smile at me and say, Andy, someone from our family's been in every war this country ever fought. My father always told us that growing up in this country brought with it responsibility, that privilege brings responsibility. And for him, that mostly meant the, the responsibility of military service. So that expectation 
was part of the furniture of my childhood, like the foot-long 57-millimeter anti-tank shell that propped up our front door in every house where we ever lived. The backdrop of my childhood was the war in Vietnam, which mostly came to us via the television, which was so often on that it became like another relative, like a crazy old uncle sitting in the corner of the living room making rat-tat-tat noises and intoning body counts with the voice of Walter Cronkite. So when it came my turn, I didn't carry on the family tradition. Not only did I not sign up, but I leafleted and sat in and marched to prevent or stop the wars of my generation, which brought a certain distance between my, my father and me for a time. I dropped in and out of college, and as Pat said, I'd travel around uh, to discover the world, hitchhiking and sleeping under bridges and seeing other places without a uniform. So in 1984, when I was 22, I decided it was time to go to France to see if my high school French would get me from place to place and keep me fed. My high school French teacher had always said, André, you are murdering the language. <laughs> but she said it with a twinkle in her eye, so I thought it was worth a shot. So I flew to Brussels, and I spent a couple days in the city, and then I took a bus to the edge of the city and hitchhiked southeast toward Namur and the French border. And that whole first day of travel, I was following the Meuse River, which is, so I was kind of running a gauntlet of bluffs on either side that were capped with castles and other fortifications of a thousand years of war. The sky hung heavy all day and threatening, but it didn't begin to rain until I got out of the last car at the end of the afternoon, just across the border in the little town of Givet, France. And so as the rain began to fall, I ducked into a little cafe to get a bite to eat and repack my things so that they wouldn't get wet. And I ordered a croque monsieur, a croque madame, and a beer, and I sat down to arrange my things while I waited for my food. And my eyes adjusted, and I saw that the only flash of color in that drab little place was a Charlie's Angels pinball machine. <laughs> so after... Finishing my food and my beer and playing with Farah and Kate and whatever the other one's name was for a moment, <laughs> I headed out into the increasingly damp dusk. And I stuck out my thumb for a while on the road to Reims, and I walked as I went, and the little stone buildings were getting further and further apart. And I didn't have a tent with me, so I realized I needed to find a dry place to spend the night. And the options seemed to be getting fewer rather than more plentiful. There wasn't even a phone booth. 
But then I saw a little, what seemed to be a little stone garage that didn't seem to be connected with any other building. And the doors were kind of ramshackle hanging off their hinges and they were slightly ajar. So I poked my head in and it was very dry inside. I figured I'd sleep there for the night. I'd be out at first light. Nobody would ever know the difference. So moments later, I was spreading out my sleeping bag and crawling in, and I read for a few minutes by the soft light of my candle lantern and then went to sleep. And sometime in the middle of the night, I came awake to a familiar sound probably a sound familiar to most of you, the sound of an automobile engine. And as I recognized the sound, I became fully awake because I realized what it meant. And when I did that, I heard the car door open, and then the doors of the garage swung completely open, and the whole place was bathed in light. And so I (coughs) flexed my invisibility muscles. We didn't have invisibility cloaks in those days, so that was the best that I could do. But I didn't hear the car door close again, so I I imagined somebody just staring into the garage, wondering what this giant blue nylon caterpillar was lying there on the ground. And then I heard a man's voice say, Me, me, c'est un garage privé! But this is a private garage. (laughs) So my cover was blown. I poked my head out of the sleeping bag. And now I had only been in uh, French-speaking territory for a couple of days. I'd gotten good at ordering croissants and asking directions. But uh, hell, I was 22. An apology was not something that I was used to in any language. But I did the best I could, and uh, he recognized my accent and asked if I was a foreigner. I said, oui, je suis américain. Uh, Yes, I'm an American. He said, ah bon, j'aime les Américains assez bien. Oh, well, I like Americans well enough. And then without another word, he got back in the car, pulled it all the way in, got out of the car, said, bonne nuit, and went out and closed the doors. And the next morning I was gone as planned at first light, and I didn't see the old gentleman again. But it occurred to me at the time that, of course, he had given me the benefit of the doubt because of the role that American troops had played in the liberation of France at the end of the war. But as time has gone by and I've lived with and revisited the story, I've put a more personal face on it. That it was my father, young men like my father and his comrades in arms, which had made this now old Frenchman take a chance on another young American almost 40 years later. My father, who's sitting right here, is on the cusp of 90 now. And his remaining ambition 
is to be the old guy sitting in the back of the convertible <laughs> at the end of the parade. <laughs> the last surviving veteran of World War II. Now, of course, that means he's rooting against a lot of his friends, but I'm rooting... <laughs> I'm rooting for Dad, too. Over the years, when I was most conscious about the distance, the differences that separated us. I still remembered to be thankful to my father for keeping a roof over my head and feeding me and getting my edu my, me educated. You know, the big things. But there were a lot of little things that I never thought to thank him for, like passing on to me the storytelling gene and the male pattern baldness that keeps me <laughs> cool in the summertime and in performance situations. And for the ethic that with privilege comes responsibility. So many little things. Little things like a dry place to rest my head one long ago forgotten night on the road. Thanks, Dad. Davis. Our final storyteller, Tony Lee, will relate a story in which this beautiful, shiny, blue, vintage, early 60s Saab 96 prominently figures. Now, I'm not a person who is impressed with cars, but how can you not be impressed by the simple, clean lines of this one? It was good on gas, sustainable, unlike the big gas-guzzling cars popular in the 60s. This car was ahead of its time, as was Tony's dad, who proudly chose to buy it. Okay, by now you're probably all worried about what's going to happen to this car. <laughs> so I will say no more and just introduce our final storyteller, Tony Lee, with his story, Driving Lesson. Oh. <laughs> it's a cool car. Um, <clears throat> probably most people who <clears throat> saw Sobs, probably the, the 99 was probably what you saw, which weighed about twice as much as that car. <clears throat> Very lightly built. Um, and it was, um, yeah, as Pat said, my dad uh, loved light cars. Um, there's another c main character in this story. Are we going to get see a picture of uh, my sister? There she is. That's Kathy. She's always very pretty and uh, always had quite, a, quite an effect on um, the males. <laughs> <laughs> And she was a little older, so you know she had quite an effect on me too. <clears throat> so I guess those those are the main things. That car and uh, my sister Kathy, who um, who I think I kind of idealized. I mean, she had this aura about her that she uh, 
you know, it seemed like she'd go by and you'd smell lilacs in the air or something. And, and the, the story takes place actually a little bit after that photo was taken, maybe a couple of years, um, when she was, I think she was 17 or 18 or something, and she was, she was getting ready to go to a, um, a dance, a prom at, um, at the high school in uh, Peterborough, New Hampshire, where I grew up. And she, she was, um, she'd come, she'd been bathed, and she was probably working on her hair. I don't know, a French twist or something, something that was going to look really good. And and the the maybe there'd be some jewelry. Certainly, the gown would be, would fill it out. And one of the things that I'm sure she thought would make it even better would be if, when she went left the house and walked out the the um the walkway that the ca- a car would be waiting for her it seemed uh, appropriate my mother used to get my dad to get the car out for her and and um sometimes even my older brother would get the car out for my mother but <clears throat> i think this seemed like a very important night for Kathy and she wanted somebody to get the car so um she called down the stairs Tony, will you get the car out for me? And I felt like this was my moment. Like this, <laughs> this was going to be good because if it was a the kind of thing that you know my dad would do or my brother Bear would do, it was a well. I I was trying to fill those shoes, so um, I I said yes and knew right where the keys were. They were right by the door, and I headed out. To, to get that car, and what what I knew exactly what it would take. <clears throat> you, um, the, the, the garage was maybe a hundred feet or so away from the walkway where it wanted to end up. So, out of the back, out of the um, the garage, back down. There's a slight ramp, you know, so you back pick up a little speed when you do that, but you you back straight and then go past a um, basketball, you know, backboard and net nailed to a tree, straight back on the, on the pavement, <clears throat> and then turn the wheel so that you'd, you know, go around um, this quite large elm tree. Uh, uh, oh. Several of the elms around, well, there was a couple of elms around the house uh, near the property. They'd all died from from the Dutch elm disease, but not this one. This And an elm, as you know, is a, I hope you know, is a beautiful tree, very sturdy. <laughs> very. <laughs> this about this big. So you go around it, of course, and stop right in front of the walkway to the car. And if you want to do this right, which of course I did, you back it very smoothly, do that turn, and stop, get out of the car, and the driver would get in. Maybe get a tip, I don't know. But, 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 be, but the whole thing was going to just go very well, and I, I knew... I hoped it would go well. So um, I think that's 
when I went out and got the car. Now this Saab, as you saw, has beautiful um, lines, and it from the back it really looks like an airplane. It has a curved um, window and and uh, quite pointy, really, for um, other cars. And it, it there's a little bumper and a small trunk. Um, then there's you could fold down the back seat so that you'd have longer place to put things in the trunk. But the seat was just it was just plywood with with some foam on it and some really light fabric. Everything everything looked like um it was made for economy and um it's very different from most cars uh, of that time. So um and this is one of the, one of the reasons my dad loved it and because it not only had those features it had some others. Well, let me let me try and describe the car, because I went out, opened the door to the car, and got in behind the wheel. And when I, sh- you know, when you shut the door of a car like that, it it, you know, I think I'd tried a VW or a Bug. I, I think he had one of those. I think he had a he had a Volvo P eighteen hundred, a MG eleven hundred, a, a Opel. All really tiny cars, which he eventually destroyed because he put trailer hitches on all of them. <laughs> and he'd lug around in the woods with these tiny little engines just breaking their hearts. But when they were new, like this Saab, it you know, it had the smell. It was just just a beautiful. So I shut the door, it sounded more like a like a clothes dryer than a car, really. It was just and and put the key in the ignition and put my hands on the wheel, maybe 10 and 2, maybe 8 and 4, <laughs> maybe just 6. <laughs> now, now, but, I mean, I was... Uh, I had this. I knew this was going to be... This is, this is going to be good. So um, I put the key in and uh, turned it, and a, a lot, the engine comes alive. And now this is a two-cycle engine. And, <clears throat> you know, later on, I heard the same sound when I, I rode a dirt bike. I mean, that's the sound, that... And it, a two-cycle engine is quite fuel-efficient and develops a lot of horsepower, especially at high RPMs. And um, so this distinctive sound, you know, you, you, had to put, you had to put oil in it. When you put, gassed it up, you'd put like a quart of oil in the thing, and um, um, it just made it unique. The other thing, while I'm down here revving it, is there was a, <laughs> there was a lever down by the f- your foot, and you could turn this about 90 degrees, and the car would be in what was called freewheeling. And it was just like if you were going down a hill and you put your put the car in neutral or you put in the clutch. It doesn't break. The engine doesn't rev and provide any braking whatsoever, which is great for saving gas. 
<laughs> what else? Oh, the floor. The floor is flat. You know, most cars have kind of a ridge for the drivetrain. But this, this car, the engine was in the front. It was a front-wheel drive. And so that was kind of unique, just kind of a thin <coughs> rubber, thinner than this kind of thing on the floor. And the little f- kind of flimsy seats. The, the shifter was, it looked more like a turn signal thing. It was, everything was so light. And so you four gears and an H pattern and then pull it out, I think, and down for reverse, which I was able to do. And had to, I had to sit kind of on the front of the seat and was able to, to reach those pedals, which again, small. So um, rev the gas, and the clutch was in, prop of the clutch, oh, it stalls. And so um, I could have stopped. Um. <laughs> you remember the first time you got in a car and nobody else was in it? This, this was, you were going to drive this car. Do you remember what it was like? Um, I sh- this was my time, and, and I was going to make the most of it. And this... What it did, instead of making me have cautionary thoughts, it made me determined to really make this work. So next time, start it, rev it, really rev it, and release the um, clutch, giving it more gas so that it definitely wasn't going to stall. Whoa, I start going backwards. Now I'm going back at faster than I thought. And and the and the rear wheels go down that little ramp out of the back of the garage. So I pick up a little more speed there, and then I'm out in the daylight, and it's bright. And that's when things started to get really disorienting. <laughs> I my memory of it it's a long time ago was kind of slow, and I think kind of quiet. <laughs> But it wasn't slow or quiet. I was going back at a good clip. And, of course, when I took my foot off the gas, it coasted beautifully. I mean, <laughs> so so I'm, the, the ramp, the, the initial lurch, I'm going backwards at a heck of a clip. And I notice the, um, the basketball thing go, whoo, right back there. And I know that unless I turn the wheel and avoid that tree, things are going to come to grief. So I jam my foot. You know, I know I need to slow down, too. I jam my foot on the brake. I miss the brake. I hit the gas. I'm going a little faster. It, again, things went on that way for an improbable amount of time when the car, in a kind of a slow way, met the tree. <laughs> and <clears throat> later, um, I, I, I heard that when they, the wrecker finally got the car to let go of the tree, <laughs> it, it, it made a tremendous screeching noise. And, and <clears throat> that um, tree um, didn't, survive much of it was scarred up 
the car, of course, was a total wreck. I mean, it had, the, the tree had passed through that bumper, through the trunk, through that back window, through the back seat, and had stopped about this far from the back of the, uh, the driver's seat where my head was. And so um, I, I think that lots of times, you know, you, if you've been in a, those, those things when, you know, parents aren't around and funny things happen, or if you've been a parent and you, you have, you know, worries about protecting um, people who are going to make bad decisions, some of the story may have been discom- uh, uncomfortable for you. It, um, but <laughs> what, I, what I'm very grateful for is um, uh, the way the, the tree stopped before it, it took me on. I mean, I, and I, I actually now can't, you know, if, even if I, I can't remember if I moved the seat forward and all the way, but my feet weren't really touching the thing. Um, did I, did I tell you how old I was? I was eight years old. <laughs> That's me. And, um, well, I was too young to drive. Um, that's the story. Thank you. the microphone too because of the radio audience. I want to invite onto the stage for a curtain call in order of their appearance, Michael Lang, Carol Clapp, Sharon Rhodes, Craig Worth, Al Portia, Amy Antonucci, Andy Davis, and Tony Lee. To our wonderful storytellers and to our wonderful audience, give yourselves a hand. This is two-way, you know, so you're going to be in the program, too. Um, If you want more of True Tales Radio and Portsmouth Community Radio, see facebook.com True Tales Radio and portsmouthcommunityradio.org. That includes if you are inspired and interested in sharing a story yourself for one of our upcoming programs. We hope you are. Many thanks to Stephanie Voss Nugent and the Artist Collaborative Theater of New England for making this event happen. Also thanks to all of our storytellers, those here heard on previous shows, as well as those here today. Thanks to producer John Levering, MC Pat Spaulding, True Tales photographers Steve Koval and Jean Gagney. And again, thanks to you, our audience, because storytelling is really only fun if you all are here too. 
Portsmouth Community Radio is a 501c3 volunteer-run nonprofit organization that depends solely on the support of members and underwriters. We are heard locally at 106.1 FM, online at PortsmouthCommunityRadio.org, and on mobile devices with Shoutcast or TuneIn apps. We are your independent community radio station and hope you'll join us as a member and a listener, PortsmouthCommunityRadio.org. Until our next True Tales radio show, I'm Amy Antonucci, and on behalf of all of us here, thank you for listening. <laughs>